Welcome to Energy Talks, um, part of the Kenya Civil Society platforms, Uliza Usichezwe uh, talks on um, the broad sector of energy, oil and gas, um, and this is our third episode. And for today's episode, um, we have with us Faith Alube. Um, Faith Alube is the current chair of the platform, uh, but also the executive director of the Kenya Land Alliance. Karibu Faith. Asante Stana Charles. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, today I just wanted to have a conversation. I, I think to start off with, uh, when people think about oil and land, you know, uh, people don't necessarily make the, the big connection between those two. Um, so I wanted to start off there. But but first, before that, let's just start with, tell us more about Kenya Land Alliance. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Charles. Uh, Kenya Land Alliance is a membership organization that was started in 1999. It was started uh, because there was no coordination or uh, an organization that can organize uh, organizations that worked on land justice. So its main uh, uh, mandate is to bring together actors that work around different aspects of land justice. So from 1999, some of, it, some of our successes include um, the lobbying of the national land policy, the adoption in 2009, uh, the adoption of the Chapter 5 of our Constitution, uh, the adoption of subsequent enabling laws. So we are very good in policy, and we are very good in ensuring that um, uh, actors that work around land justice actually come together and, and synergize so that we stop working in silos. That stretches the resources that we have, and it always brings that innovation. Okay. Um, yeah. And uh, I mean, tell us more about yourself as well. We know that even before Kenya Land Alliance, <laughs> you worked on land for, for a long, long period of time. Yes. Um, so, I mean, in, 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 in that learning, um, what do you see as the key challenges that have been existing in the land sector that have been troubling the country at large? Yes, I um, I've been I've been working on land and different aspects of human rights uh, for the last fifteen years. I've worked at the Kenya Human Rights Commission for seven years, and before the Kenya Human Rights Commission, I was working at the Federation of Women Lawyers. Right now, I'm at the Kenya Land Alliance, and I'd say that um, as a human rights lawyer, some of the existing challenges include. Um, and resolve historical land injustices. As we speak right now, so many communities in Kenya are still affected by colonial legacies. And most of these policies were so skewed to, 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 to the extent that these communities have never been able to really recover. And I'll give an example, like communities that live forest dwellers, pastoralists, these are communities that were just made or were forced or compelled to live within policies that were not favoring them. Uh, there are communities in the coastal region, which up to date, some of them cannot even own land and they are always called squatters. I normally wonder how can you be a squatter and you are an indigenous mm -hmm. in your ancestral land. It's an inherent right. So there is unresolved land injustices. There's the issue of abuse of office by most, especially officials in land offices. You get that since they know maybe a mega project would be passing through an area, they buy land, they speculate. So the communities that are living around those mega projects rarely understand why, why are we selling land? And then, you know, they buy land for like, let's say, 
very cheaply and then sell it very expensively at the expense of the communities. I'd say the third challenge has to do with access to information, especially around uh, concessions and contracts and even the production sharing agreement like in the case of TALO. Their lack of access to proper information for communities also limits public participation. They do not know how to engage with the process. And, and, and that then in effect makes them um, disfranchised even before a project uh, starts. So it's by design. Yeah. And I'll even give an example. You know, when you're talking about, let's say, um, let me give an example of an extractive community, like let's say Kuala. They do not understand the terms and conditions that are contained in um, the contract between the government and Best Titania. So in essence, the community cannot demand for rights that they do not know. And then there's that um, aspect of balancing between disclosure and brevity of contract. You know, they always told, you know, we cannot disclose this because it's, it's a private issue, because it's a private contract. But at the same time, it should be public information. And then I think the last big challenge is um, legal literacy. Legal literacy because of the multiplicity of laws that exist in our country. You get that land is multifaceted. Yeah. It has so many spheres and it, it affects so many, it has interlinking rights. So very many people, especially communities, are not legal literate in order to be able to claim their rights across the laws. Yeah. So off the top of, of, of my mind, I think those ones... Um, okay. and, yeah. and so I want to bring you back uh, a bit towards, uh, especially on oil and gas, because yeah. um, what we are finding increasingly is that um, oil... These resources or these natural resources mm -hmm. are found in in um, in very far flung areas, mm -hmm. areas again which are you know in some instances uh, like you you mentioned pastoralists um, or indigenous people who have not had have not been integrated into the main economy, mm. um, and so in your opinion, mm. I mean, do you see this as a is it a, an opportunity for them? Is it a blessing for them? Because now they've been left out of the main economy. Um, you know, they're suffering high rates of illiteracy or um, uh, rates of, um, like, I mean, I think like you mentioned also, I mean, education, I mean, the education quality, their health health outcomes. So they're, they're, they're sort of suffering already. Mm. I mean, are these natural resources going to benefit them in the long run or are they going to just pile on more misery to them? I'd say we need a lot of organizing around that because according to Article 61 of our constitution, land is classified into three. Um, community lands, uh, private lands, and public lands. And, and the, the biggest chunk of our land in Kenya falls under the communally held lands. Those are the places you're calling far flung. 70%, yeah. almost between 65 and 70% of our lands are communally held lands. Yeah. So um, for the longest time, they were, they were under the group ranches regime, yeah. uh, the group ranches act of 1980 or the trust lands. But with the enactment of the community land act of 2016, the group ranches act, uh, the group ranches act was repealed and the Trust Lands Act was repealed. So these communities should register their lands afresh under the Community Lands uh, Community Land Act of 2016. So there's a challenge there because it is self-resourcing. And these, these communities, um, they manage their natural resource. Um, 
you know, it's communally held. They have this traditional way of life. The pastoralists have their own pastoralist economy. So it becomes a challenge to manage the natural resources in a formalized way, the way the law wants them to. Yeah. Because they, are, they have their own grazing fields, they have their own um, uh, forests that they manage, their own rivers, because according to Article 260 of our Constitution, land is the surface, what is beneath, and what is above the land, like wind, like sun, that forms land. Yeah. And natural resources includes what we are working on, what the natural that occurs naturally. Yeah. You see, that, that supplements itself. So when you're talking about it being a blessing for them, they have to organize better so that they understand how to engage with the formal systems in order to claim their rights. Um, unfortunately, um, with the fluid land tenure that they, they have, uh, land grabbing is going on, yeah. a lot of uh, misinformation, a lot of, um, I can say, the politically correct, or the elite, there's elite capture and and I don't know, um, it's unfortunate as well because most of the natural resources like extractives, uh, like, um, you know, like wind, power, uh, sun, solar, they're, they're usually easily harvested in such areas that there's no formal, uh, formal way of documenting land. So I'd say it is a blessing, but they need to be really educated to understand how do they engage with the formal systems so that they are communally held uh, lands, uh, even as much as it's an informal way of managing it, does not inconvenience or disadvantage them in the long run. They have to engage with the formal systems, register their lands, and be able to claim their rights within the statutory space. Um, yeah, and I think that brings it to a good point. I mean, your organization has been at the forefront of trying to support communities mm -hmm. um, uh, working on this issue. Um, do you see registration as as, as a as a key milestone towards that in terms of protecting the rights of uh, communities? Registration is a, is a milestone, a big one, because now there's protection and recognition of communally held lands. But one of the things that I normally tell uh, the communities to appreciate is that their right to their land is inherent. The registration just endorses an existing right. So they should be alive to that so that they can be able to negotiate among themselves from a point of strength. It's not from, you know, we do not have this, we do not have this. No, they have an existing right already. The existing right should be able to make them be, to assert their property rights as they, 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 they draft their bylaws because they need to draft their bylaws. As they decide that they are going to register their lands maybe within a clan, a family, a ward, they should know that registration endorses an existing right already. Okay. Um, and and so we're in the middle of a pandemic, um, and there's a huge challenge, obviously. How has that impacted your work and your ability to actually uh, protect communities or the communities that you work with? Um, do you see it as a huge challenge? Um, and are you also worried, for example, about the things that are happening now, now that you're unable to you know, sort of mobilize and, and, and get people organized to protect their rights? Yeah, it's, mobilizing has been quite a challenge. When, when we started out, um, like when COVID hit uh, last year, a lot of uh, registries and some courts, um, the courts went virtual. 
and Regis is just closed down because of the crowding and, and because of the pandemic. So most of the processes that uh, communities were engaging in, like succession, like um, registering of their lands, uh, was, was sort of... I'm guessing put, also public interest litigation that was yes, going on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so such processes stalled. Mm. So you see, it interfered with access to justice. And then there are ongoing land justice processes that the ministry is undertaking, like the digitization process, which uh, by now Nairobi is fully digitized. There's the ongoing community registration uh, process, the review of the national land policy, the community benefit sharing mechanisms. All these processes, they affect the communities, but they could not engage. Yeah. Because you know of limited uh, uh, mobilization and and there's there's limited dissemination of of government policy, I'd also say uh, for the community land rights defenders that we work with, it became very risky because now they had to 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 do like a door to door sort of um, advocacy. Yeah. That that really exposes them, and then the, we could not really support them because it's just technical from a distance. So there was that danger of them being exposed and not having a good uh, support system as they are used to. Yeah. And we work through our members. Another challenge that we've noticed is that um, the members have a hard time. You know, most of these communities prefer face-to-face the virtual um, the virtual way of working limits uh, their way of engaging because even if it's not technology, they are still not used to it. Yeah. So our members have been complaining that, you know, we cannot like um, try and disseminate, like let's say a community benefit sharing mechanism without a face-to-face meeting. Yeah. So I'd say the pandemic has come with its own way of working, the virtual way, and we are capacity building our our constituency, yes. uh, the communities that we work with across 25 counties, because that's where our membership is, to try and engage virtually, but we are there's always room uh, to get it right. Um, I want to take you back a bit to something you mentioned earlier as well. Um, one of the challenges of the oil and gas and even natural, I mean, broader natural resource sector is, is and I think you mentioned it correctly, transparency and, mm. and accountability. Mm, mm. Um, and there's existing challenge already that majority of the contracts, for example, are signed at the national level. Mm. Um, how do you see, I mean, how have you seen the, the transition um, in the transparency and accountability phase from the, the passing of the constitution in 2010, which speaks to access to information, for example, that uh, gives community, you know, more say, I, I mean, how do, you, how do you gauge that transition? Has there been a huge, have you seen a switch especially in government holding information and being more open. Yeah, I'd say there's a big transformation. Like, you know, our, our constitution gives us a framework to claim so many rights that uh, before then the authoritarian, authoritarian uh, constitution before then could not allow us to claim some of these rights. Uh, if you look even at... Um, the fact that Article 10 introduces very progressive principles that we can actually go to court and claim and, and say, you know, this is our constitutional right, according to Article 10. Uh, the issue of non-discrimination also uh, eliminates the generational exclusion of women from governance processes. That is not something we could claim before. 
And then, you know, uh, there's the issue of principles that are laid out in Article 60. And, of course, we're talking about um, access to information. Um, those are rights that were not entrenched in any law before. But right now, they are constitutional rights, rights of association. Before then, you know, you could not even share information. There are some information that used to be termed as seditious, yeah. you know. So I'd say that the Constitution has opened uh, spaces that we can use. And if you look at the two-tier government, um, uh, two-tier governance system, it even helps the, the, the communities to be able to engage at county level through the CIDPs, through the ADPs that they, are, they should, you know, participate in. Before then, the, 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 the circulars that the government used to, to use to develop budgets were not something that the communities could influence because of elite capture and because of bureaucracy. So I'd say our new concern, and then I can't forget Chapter 6, because with the integrity uh, chapter, then we are able even to, you know, demand that there are some of these concessions that parliament should go through. That is Article 71. Yeah. And they should consider the integrity chapter, chapter 6. So I'd say our constitution has really opened um, a space that before now, before 2010, uh, some of us could not like uh, claim some of those interlinking rights that were obvious yeah. and inherent. But they, we, we used to we used to be made to feel like it's a favor, you know. We are being, you know, philanthropic and allowing you to talk the way you want to talk. But with the current constitution, it's it's, it's a right that we can assert at any time. Um, and I, I want to bring you uh, to to a topic. I'm sure um, that in a current era of a lady CJ, ah, um, <laughs> oh, that's a milestone. It's a huge milestone. Mm -hmm. uh, now we have uh, Chief Justice uh, Martha uh, Kome, mm. um, and I know. Women are impacted, especially when it comes to the land issue. Do you see um, currently that that would be an era now of transition where there will be more inclusion of women, for example, in decision-making around land use uh, or land access? Yes, it's, it's a big milestone. Her nomination, uh, uh, it's something that I hope will be endorsed. And, 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 and women, we, we cannot hide our joy, you know. That's the... the, the epics of, of, you know, the judiciary. I'd say it's, it's a big milestone considering even her, she's, she's been uh, um, a human rights champion for like 35 years. So having someone in that position who understands um, the, the, the rights discourse, who understands human rights as, as an inherent uh, um, um, discussion for, for Kenyans. I think it, it'll go a long way, not only for women, but the Kenyan community. And we hope that uh, women would also be able to benefit more because now she, she, she worked for FIDA for quite a while. So she understands that discourse. And she used to work when it was really, really tough when patriarchy was, was you know, was, was the order of the day. Yeah. So we hope that her being there would be able to open spaces. And for some of us, it's now we are happy because it's a beaten path. Yeah. We will just, you know, follow. <laughs> because it's beaten. She, she's already beaten the path for, for, for young women that are coming after her. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so now to, to the land question and, mm. and, and the women impacts on it. I mean, I think you understand, I mean, one of the biggest challenges is also just getting women in decision-making uh, spaces. Uh, and so even when concessions, for example, for oil and gas exploration, a lot of women are not consulted. Um, how can we ensure that that 
at that local level, the decision-making process improves in terms of access for women? Yeah, women are never really uh, 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 included in most decision-making processes because of culture, tradition. But our question is very clear in Article 2.4 that, you know, retrogressive culture should not be practiced. Only norms that adhere to our grand norm should be adhered to. So uh, norms like discrimination, norms like, you know, threatening and stigma and ostracization, those are some of the norms that our constitution discourages. And you get that um, Article 2.5 and 2.6 further include international um, instruments like SEDO, Maputo Protocol, that are very progressive when you're talking about women's rights. And Article 2.5 and 2.6 includes them in our laws. So that has that has gone a long way in ensuring that women are included in decision-making processes. And one of the things that we keep on saying as Kenya Land Alliance is that we should also look at the exclusion, generational exclusion of women as a justice issue. Because women form half of the population of Kenya. When you exclude half of the population from decision-making, that is an injustice. So it is a justice question that should be addressed as such. So I'd say one of the ways, some of the ways we can include women uh, in decision-making spaces from community level is to organize them better and to ensure that they are included even in traditional uh, decision-making spaces right from community level. Enforcement of the law is quite, quite important because you get patriarchy even affects the officers that are working at community level. You get a chief just allocates himself the role of, you know, being as a land agent. So every widow who, who's, who's, you know, pursuing the succession process, you get that a chief now allocates himself a role that he does not have in the law. Yeah. Or oh, you want to sell? Oh, I can sell it for you. You know, that's not a role of a chief. Yeah. A chief is just to, you know, endorse the fact that this widow belong to that community. Uh, The second one is the addressing of of culture and patriarchal practices, even at the earliest, you know, manifestation of that, of such. And that would be maybe by ensuring that the two-thirds gender principle is observed, no matter the, the committee. Every natural resource committee, when you're talking about forests, when you're talking about water water management committees, when you're talking about land committees, when you're talking about community land committees, women should be encouraged to to be part of it. And then outreach and awareness cannot be understated because that legal literacy that I spoke about still affects a lot of women. They need a second party to read for them contracts. When you're talking about concessions, uh, women are rarely involved because you get that maybe a man would even hire a woman by the street to go and act, you know, as his wife. And the wife at home wonders, how come they never consulted me? But if she understands that this is the cycle and she can read for herself, it becomes easier for them to engage. And then, of course, there are some dynamics, like you get um, some of these um, meetings, consultative meetings, uh, scheduled like in the morning when the woman should be should should when women slot to go to the river, get firewood, take children to go to school. So you know also certain and dynamics like those ones they should be considered. Maybe a meeting can be scheduled like at eleven mm-hmm. once they are done with their house chores, so that they can also come to the venue. And, and, and engage. And the vernacular radio stations have also played a very huge role because we get to talk to the women in their own spaces and in a language that they understand at their own level. Okay. 
So I mean, public participation at that level Very obviously important. Is, is is important. And, yes. and I think I think you mentioned. I think a lot of times people forget about the role of vernacular radio, for example. And yes. like you said, I I like that the point you made that you're speaking to them, um, but also if it, addressing the time factor. Mm -hmm. So they they would be you know undertaking what they'd normally undertake. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to bring up an issue that you you've raised there around sort of fetching firewood mm -hmm. um, because one of the things that we're also trying is to look at energy access mm -hmm. as a justice issue mm -hmm. um, because you're seeing that energy and especially what type of energy you use. Mm -hmm. So if you're using charcoal and, and firewood, mm -hmm. um, there's also uh, implications for health, mm -hmm. for example, mm -hmm. on the health outcomes mm -hmm. um, if you're the people who are stuck in the kitchen, you know, mm -hmm. uh, doing that. Mm -hmm. But also um, for for young, young women, um, if that is their role, then they're also having a negative impact on their... Um, education outcome, for example. Mm. So they're out fetching firewood instead of, of being in school. school. Mm. So I don't know how you how you see that, how, you know, pushing forward this idea that energy is also sort of a justice issue in terms of access to, to different outcomes. Yeah, energy is a justice issue considering that uh, um, a majority of Kenyans still use the basic. They use firewood, they use charcoal, they use uh, paraffin, and 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 when 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 you look at when when you bring it down and and try and just um, understand the economy around uh, usage of of such sources, then some questions arise like what is the long term health implications of some of these communities, yeah. and how can it be made better? I remember there's a time Kenya Land uh, Alliance uh, we were working with a group of women in Narok. Uh, to plant seedlings, and then we used to sell the seedlings to the government so that we can, like, replenish uh, our forest reserves. Yeah. And and um, at the end of it all, what one of the trends that we managed to observe was that as much as they are planting seedlings, they are also using the same firewood as their main source of energy. So you start asking yourself, isn't it cyclic? On one hand, you should replenish, but on the other hand, you have no other option or you, you're sort, sort of compelled to use that as, as your main source of fuel. No. So I'd say we need to question or we need to, to come up with better ways of engaging communities to understand how then can we make it better for them? How then can we ensure that um, as a means of livelihood, they are not inconvenienced, but at the same time, we don't disadvantage them, even in the long term, when you're looking about, when you're talking about the environment in a whole, when you're talking about their own um, sustenance as communities, and, and replenishing of even just management of the resources around them as natural resources. So it's a justice question. Oh, fantastic. And I think that's a that's a good place to, to sort of end and I mean to thank you first of all for, for joining us on Energy Talks. Mm. Um, I don't know that there's any any other broader additional issue you'd like to uh, to bring to our attention. It's been a pleasure and hope I've shared my thoughts and they'd be able to, to educate uh, as we disseminate. But the most important thing, as I always say, the community should not abdicate their right to demand for accountability to NGOs or to organized communities. Every other community member has a right to demand for accountability um, in any space that they are in. Thank you. Thank you, Faith. Um, and on that note, um, thank you for joining us on Energy Talks. Thank you.